a blessed Good Friday to you, and welcome to Amazing Love. You've come on an incredible night um, with a kind of different atmosphere. I don't know if you've ever been to a Ten Embrace service, uh, but this is a service that moves from light to darkness. To remember, on the day Jesus died, the sky turned black. Today is a very bittersweet day. Um, it is bitter because we see the suffering of Jesus, and so if there are tears or emotions, uh, if there is some sadness, that's understandable. But it's also sweet because we see how far love goes. We see the greatest love in the world give unfathomable lengths as he gives his body on the cross, and this out of love. And so may you enjoy our bittersweet celebration of Jesus' passion. A few notes about the service. On the way in, you had an opportunity to nail your family name or your name on the cross to remember that Jesus died for you. In the service, we'll have a series of seven words of the cross. And so Pastor Jeff and I will take turns of introducing these lessons for you um, as we move from light to darkness. There'll be a sermonette, and we will talk a little bit about how the end of his work means the end of ours. You'll have the opportunity today to leave in silence. Um, so after the service, you can leave at your leisure. There will be no music. There will be no greeting. Um, part of the reason we do this is not because we don't like each other, but because we remember the somber moment of Good Friday and are going to come back for a much more joyous Easter celebration. During the service, we'll also have something called the strepidus. Um, that is after the last light is turned out, and it's to symbolize the closing of Jesus' tomb. After this, you'll see a candle come in from the back, and this is to symbolize the dawning of hope, the symbolism of three days, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so may God bless you through this experience. May he be with us tonight and bless our worship. And now I'm going to invite you to join with me in a prayer as we worship the Lord. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us, your family, for whom our Savior Jesus was willing to be betrayed, be given over into the hands of the wicked, and suffer death upon the cross. Help us to see the gravity and weight of our sin, but also rejoice in its full and complete payment. Send us your Holy Spirit as we worship you in this hour. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We now continue with our first song. Feel free to join in as you're comfortable the song will be before you on the screen, Man of Songs.
When it comes to the idea of forgiveness, there is this thought that surely some sins are unforgivable. Murder, genocide, other things that are worse. Truly there can't be payment for that. Another common thought is this, that surely there are some people who are outside the realm of forgiveness. Stalin, Hitler, Putin, how could they be forgiven? As we look at our first lesson, we have some characters who definitely have done enough and are enough that shouldn't be forgiven. We have the soldiers who were the ones mocking Jesus before the cross, the ones who implemented the flogging and the tearing of his flesh. We have the ones who are nailing him to the cross. And if you've ever been in pain by someone else, you know the knee-jerk reaction to someone who puts you in pain is to bring pain back, is not to show mercy. We have a saying that hurt people hurt people. Truly, the soldiers shouldn't be forgiven. But that's not our Savior Jesus. Jesus looks at these soldiers and says, Father, forgive them. And this is actually the Christian's greatest joy. It's the greatest joy because it means that no matter who comes to church, hurting and broken, the knowledge of their sin, no, no matter what it is, it's paid for tonight. It means no, no matter how long you've been away, if it's been a week, a month, a year, ten years, he welcomes you with open arms like he welcomed the prodigal back. Because our God forgives each and every sin, anyone who's willing to come to him. This is the beautiful gospel we consider as we turn to the words of our first lesson. I invite you to follow along as we have our reading from Luke. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is our powerful lesson. And so now is kind of a big moment where we as sinners come before the cross of Jesus and just say, God, once again, I didn't get it all right. God, once again, I need the sacrifice of Jesus. And so with that, you're invited uh, with me to confess our sins and then hear what God has done. Our confession is before you. Heavenly Father, tonight, tonight we, we cannot, cannot escape, escape the, the full weight of our sin. Our sin deserves punishment, death, and hell. Our sin deserves that you would turn your face from us forever. But we are in awe of Jesus and his sacrifice tonight. Empower us not to take for granted the great cost of our salvation. Something that I love as a pastor is that you can come and hear that the gospel is free, that forgiveness is free. And while it is free to you and I, and there's no strings attached to the love of God, it was not free in general. Tonight we see the great cost of that forgiveness. The Apostle Peter says, it wasn't with silver or gold, it was with the precious blood of Jesus that we are redeemed. And so because he paid that great cost, I get to tell you these wonderful words. Your sins are forgiven. 
this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You are at peace with a righteous God and your punishment has been paid. Amen and amen. We continue with our next lesson. In our next lesson, we get a picture of what's going on on top of that hill called Golgotha, a cloud gathers around Jesus. And we get to see their response. There are leaders there. They mock Jesus. There are soldiers there. They join in jeering Jesus. There are even two criminals crucified next to Jesus. And one of the criminals, the first criminal's response is to join in. Don't you say you're the son of God? Well, if you are who you claim to be, save yourself and us. But there's a second criminal. And it's interesting to know the original word in the Greek behind that word criminal. It's kakorgos. It literally means one who does evil. Maybe we can't so easily relate to those two men being crucified with Jesus, but I can certainly relate, and possibly you can, to being an evildoer, one who does evil in my life. And I love watching the reaction of that second evildoer, that second criminal. He looks at Jesus, and from one angle, he is convicted. Through the lens of the law, he sees this holy man, innocent man, hanging on a cross, and he recognizes this man has done nothing. This innocent man has done nothing to deserve this. But me, I'm right where I belong. And then, even though he's nailed to a cross, somehow he shifts his perspective and he looks at this holy Jesus, and he sees in him his Savior. The very name Jesus means just that, Savior. And he says to him, Lord, I, I know that I can come to you and seek your salvation. I can ask you a very important question, the question that we all want to know one day, can I be in heaven too? Can I go to the life that follows this life and be with you. And Jesus' answer is a beautiful promise. Today, this very day, you will be with me in heaven, in paradise. We read Luke 23, 35 to 43. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. A mother's heart is a pretty powerful thing. I don't know if you've ever seen that mother's heart in action. That mother's heart will endure pain so their kids don't have to be in pain. That mother's heart will act as if everything were okay so that the kids won't be afraid. It's amazing the lengths it goes because of the love that is so innate 
in that heart. Can you imagine Mary's heart tonight? Can you imagine as he watch, she watches her son give his life in the most gruesome way? Tonight is a night when a prophecy is fulfilled that a sword would pierce her heart, even though she has the joy of being the, the mother of the Messiah. And yet there's a heart bigger than Mary's. And it's the heart of her son. It's the heart of Jesus. Who in the midst of his pain looks at his mom and says, Mom, it's going to be okay. <laughs> mom, I'm making plans for you. I haven't forgotten. And lines up John, the disciple whom he loved, to make sure that John would watch out for his mom, Mary, in the midst of his pain so that mom could be okay. This is the heart of Jesus for you. I know you and I go through suffering and pain. I know that you and I have hard days, but you need to know the cross is so, so that Jesus, your Savior, the Messiah, could endure the bitterest pain so you never will have to. That's the glory of tonight. That's his heart. We consider this as we turn to our next lesson. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. It's a powerful word. I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, we have the opportunity as a community to just confess who Jesus is, to confess what he's done for us. And tonight we use the explanation of the second article of the Apostles' Creed to just out loud say what Jesus did. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. This is most certainly true. Please be seated. I've asked it. Maybe you along the way somewhere in your life have asked it. Maybe, like me, you've asked it more than once. Where is God when it hurts? Where is God in the midst of those terrifying times of our life? Where is God in the midst of those painful seasons that we go through? Where are you, God? Jesus, in our next lesson, hanging on the cross, says some shocking words. Shocking because we, we can't even possibly understand how this happens. And the reason he says these words is due to the fact that he's undergoing the truest and deepest punishment. 
that anyone could ever go through. Punishment not for his wrongs, not for his own sins, but punishment for your sins and my sins. And so in the midst of all of that, he says something that we can hardly grasp. And yet, what he says is that for the first time in all eternity, Jesus, part of the of the three-in-one, asks, God, where are you? Ask that very question that we sometimes ask. God, where are you? And in Jesus' case, he asks it because he is truly separated from God. Unbelievable. And that's actually the very definition of what hell is, eternal separation from God. Jesus undergoes it for you and for me. And so when we ask that question in our own lives, there may not always be a verbal answer that comes back to us, a direct answer that we receive. But here's one thing that we can always rest assured of. And that is whatever we're going through, no matter how terror-filled, no matter how agonizing and painful it is, Jesus knows. Jesus himself has been there. And I want you, as I read this, to recall those beautiful words from the author of the book of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We read from Matthew 27, verses 45 to 49. From noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him.
impactful prophecies of Jesus' suffering and death. Isaiah 53 is what coordinates both Old and New Testament. Uh, hard not to think of the cross as we consider these words. I'll read the unbolded portions. Feel free to join in the bold portions. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew, grew up, up before, before him, him like a tender shoot, shoot and like, like a root, root out, out of dry, dry ground. ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was, he was despised and rejected, and rejected by, by mankind, mankind, a man, man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took, he took up, up our, our pain, pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But, but he, was he was pierced, pierced for, for our transgressions. transgressions. He, he was, was crushed, crushed for, for our iniquities. The, punish, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, we all, like sheep, sheep have, have gone, gone astray. Each, Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, on our church Facebook page, on my personal page, I shared a write-up of the crucifixion. It shared what was happening physically uh, from a medical standpoint. And if you don't know anything about crucifixion, um, it's torture. It's something the Greeks invented and the Romans perfected. Without trying to go too much into detail, by the time it was done, basically... Your joints were dislocated. Um, you struggled to breathe because you couldn't hold yourself up. And those nails at those nerve endings, uh, they, they would feel just powerful every time you tried to move. It's the worst way to die. Whenever I consider the pain of Jesus, it's hard for me to really complain about the pain in my life. And I'm not minimizing the pain that we go through. And, and I surely wouldn't minimize the pain that you go through. But what I would do is I would point to a God who knows your pain. What, what I would do is remind you that as much as you've been down, as much as you've been beaten, as much as you suffer, he suffered more. And he loves you. I wonder, though, if this true God would have liked to just stay true God and not experience humanity. I wonder from crib to cross if at any time he's like, if I could just be God in this moment as he suffers human flesh. And yet he became mortal so that you and I someday could attain immortality. He endured pain so that you and I someday could be done with pain once and for all because of Jesus who endured it. Yes, you and I know the struggles of humanity, as does Jesus, but you and I someday will have immortal life without pain because of Jesus this day. We turn to our lesson now as we consider uh, his humanity as he's thirsty um, and even drinks some sour wine. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. These are the words of the Lord. We continue. 
It is finished. I think most of us know what Jesus meant by that. Maybe somewhere in a sermon along the way or a Bible study lesson, you even heard that that phrase mean the goal has been reached. What Jesus was sent to accomplish, he had accomplished every bit of it. The salvation that God wanted to win for you, for me, it was fully won. The forgiveness that Jesus won for you, for me, that also was fully accomplished. The goal had been reached. But in Africa, that phrase, it is finished, means something slightly different. If you're maybe having a drink with someone, and if they were to look to you and you, you would say, could you refill my bottle? And they look in the, in the bigger bottle that they use for refills, they might pick that bigger bottle up and turn it over, unlike this bottle, they would turn it over and say, it's, it's finished. Meaning, the bottle is empty. And as we hear Jesus say, it's finished, I hope we also hear that in his words. Yes, what a beautiful gospel truth that everything Jesus needed to do for our forgiveness and for our salvation has been done but also that we recognize that Jesus has poured himself out entirely, entirely to win our salvation. He is at the very end of himself. He's left it all on the field, all for us. And that's the measure of his love for you and for me. Salvation, forgiveness, the goal has been reached, but know always that Jesus poured himself out entirely to say to you, that's how much I love you and want you with me for an eternity. We read John 19.30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. a wretch I remember who I was I was lost I was blind I was running out of time sin separated the breach was far too wide but from the far side of the chasm you held me 
friends gathered, would you pray with me and let's ask God to bless the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, what more powerful word can we have tonight than to meditate on your sacrifice? Lord, I, I just, I repent for all the times that I've just been such a complainer compared to what you went through. <laughs> the little things that I, I think I've offered are nothing compared to what you're offering me in Jesus Christ. Help me to remember that as much as I try to give, it's about what you gave that brings true peace. And so, Lord, bless that preaching of the word tonight and, and let it just bring peace and joy to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a problem, and that problem is that I am a perfectionist. I don't know if any of you can relate to me and have perfectionistic tendencies. I took this test called the Enneagram, and uh, I am a number one. Uh, which, again, is a perfectionist. I should have known this from my background. Um, Bloomer is Swiss, and I don't know what you know about Swiss culture, but they're a bit of perfectionists. Um, if you consider, for example, a Swiss watch, uh, look how intricately that is made. Look how much that has to go into it. If any of those dials are off, if any of the screws are off, it's not going to work well. That's my people, friends. And what this means is that when I do a, a work, when I try to give my best, my best sometimes is not good enough. Um, and where I see this in particular is hanging pictures. I, I don't know if you've ever struggled hanging a picture. My struggle is this. I will hang it, and I will get it to where the level says the bubble's in the middle, but it's not exactly in the middle. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so the bubble looks like this. It's clearly a little bit more on one side. And to a perfectionist, this means my work is not yet done. But herein lies the problem. The more I try to fix it, the more the bubble doesn't work. When I go for perfection, if I would just leave it kind of imperfect, it'd be fine. No one would say anything. But it's simply when I go for perfection that all of it comes apart I waste a few hours in the process, and I wish I could actually just go back to that. This is my problem. I'm working on it, friends. <laughs> I bring this up because what you are in life, if you can relate to perfectionist tendencies, it is really bad crossover, not just when hanging paintings, but, but is a super bad crossover when it comes to a relationship with God. In fact, if, if you want to just think about something, something that I, I know as a pastor, after much study of the Bible, after considering Good Friday, is this very simple principle that perfectionism before God doesn't work. It's a lost cause. In fact, similar to hanging the picture on the wall, the more I try to go after perfection, the more I mess it up. The more I try to prove myself, the more I see I don't stand up. And I bring this up because in the Good Friday lesson, we have a group of people, and I don't know if they're from Switzerland, I don't know if they got number one on the Enneagram, but they are dealing with perfectionistic tendencies. Here's their problem. They're infusing this idea to Christians in Galatia that it's not just Jesus' work that matters, it is your work that matters. Uh, they were Judaizers, which means they were Jews who loved the Old Testament ceremonies. And what this means is they were saying, you know what, as long as you follow the Old Testament ceremonies, especially circumcision if you're a man, 
then you can feel like the bubble's in the middle. Without all of that, it's not quite in the middle. Without all of that, you can't quite be confident. But if you do all of that, take all the Old Testament ceremonies, then you can finally have peace. Now, I'm not sure Christians today really wrestle with what the Judaizers were saying. I don't meet many Christians who are bent out of shape over the Old Testament ceremonies or circumcision. But I have met a lot of Christians trying to be perfect before God. Have you ever tried to prove yourself? God, you must love me. You must bless me because, well, I'm worshiping you, aren't I? I'm here during Holy Week and Good Friday. I didn't skip Good Friday. You know, I could have just went to Easter. Look at me. God, I serve you. I volunteer. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good husband or wife or parent. I serve you because I love you. Look at that. God, you know I'm generous. Come on, you know. All the time I've put in, the talent, and I say to God be the glory. You know, I just did taxes. I gave something. God, I'm a pretty good person, aren't I? Wouldn't you say so? And as we hold that up, it's kind of like being a kid. Do you remember this as a kid? When, when you were in a crowd and um, you really wanted to see something, but you were short. Does anyone remember this? So all you can see is everyone in front of you, and you don't have your dad's shoulders to rest on, and you wish you could see the band or see Santa Claus or see whatever it is that you wanted to see, but all you see is everyone crowding that sight. And so if you and I were to approach God on a works basis, what we're really doing is crowding what we should be staring at, which is the beauty of Jesus' work. Whenever we hold up anything else, it gets in the way of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And God says clearly tonight, would you get that out of the way? In fact, it's a filthy rag. You're trying to hold up something that's dirty. You're trying to hold up something that simply doesn't work. It actually indicts you even more. Because to live as if we could follow the laws would mean that we have to strain for perfection. That we'd have to get it all right all the time and never cease. And who can do that? And so the good news is this beautiful, ugly day. It's an ugly day. Our best friend died. It's an ugly day. His suffering should have been mine and yours. It's an ugly day. As he's groaning and crying out, as he suffers. But it's a beautiful day. Because who has loved you better? Who has given you more? It's a beautiful day. Because as he hangs on the cross and doesn't come down, he's crushing the devil's head. And that devil who likes to accuse you, 
and get you bent out of shape with guilt and fear. That devil can accuse no longer, not because of the cross, because of the cross of Jesus. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day because we can bring any sin and know it's paid for. I love Good Friday because it reminds me of this simple truth. It's because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice we have peace. If we could be perfect, please tell me, why does he die? If anything we offered was enough, why is he here? But we needed this beautiful, ugly sacrifice, and we have it. Tonight we talk about the end of his work being the end of ours. Do any of you know the joy of what it is to be done with work? Maybe there are some jobs you've worked where when the bell finally rang, you're clocked out. When the project was sent off, you just had a huge sigh of relief. Some of you have spring break you've just experienced. Some of you have school that's ending that you're looking forward. When work is done, it's a beautiful feeling. But here's what workers usually don't do. They don't stick around if they're not getting paid. They don't work on a project that has already been sent to the client. No, when the work is done, you go home. When it comes to our lives, as Jesus says it is finished, what he's basically telling you is that your work is done. And if you were trying to, to do more, if you were trying to work at your salvation, it, it'd kind of be like that worker staying after when the project was sent after, and there's no more billable hours, and, and the project can't be sent back. If you were to spend the rest of your life working, and if you were to have the righteousness of Mother Teresa and the impact of Billy Graham, you would still not add an iota to the salvation that was won for you by Jesus Christ. You still have not accomplished anything when it comes to salvation. So the reality of this day is that as he ends his work, your work is done. And your toil and your striving to try to prove yourself and how good you are is finally over. When were you saved? You were saved 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on a cross and said, it's finished. And that's the path to perfect peace. And as I see it, there are two options for our lives going forward. The two options are this. We can either live under the curse of the law or under the wonder of grace. See, one thing that we could do, and it's common, I'm going to warn you, people do it all the time, they forget about today. You could go back and you could forget about the payment of Jesus and you could try to prove yourself through your performance. And it'd be a curse. You'd try to fake it till you make it in while having unrested, unrested heart because you know you're not enough. You'd give off the impression of hypocrisy to all that are around you. If you have kids around you and you're trying to fake it, they would then believe that Christianity is a bunch of people trying to act as if they were better, but really they're not. If you were part of a church, 
reaching the lost would mean they come in with a big weight and you'd give them a bigger weight because you tell them, yes, your sin stinks, but also do this instead. And for the rest of our days, we'd never have peace. We'd always wonder if we were enough and we'd perpetuate hypocrisy and guilt and shame. And Paul says this would be a curse. But there's another option. live under grace it's to understand that freely as a gift jesus gives you righteousness he gives you life he gives you peace with the heavenly father the righteous will live by faith and faith is the open hand that accepts all the gifts that jesus won all the peace that is ours And what this would mean for our lives is we'd go back to our homes and we wouldn't try to convince our kids that we were perfect because they know we're not anyway. We would just tell them how much we love God because of what he gave in spite of who I am. And our kids would always then know they can go to God. That if God could forgive us and we're a mess, he can definitely forgive them and they'd never want to run away. If we live this way, we would reach the lost, and when the lost came in, we'd have this complete confidence that no matter their sin and no matter how long they were away, they can be redeemed by the grace of God because he did it for us. We would live each day in the wonder, trying to make sense of a God who would give his son to death so that we could become sons and daughters and just go, wow, You're amazing. I don't know about you, but I choose this way to live. I think it would beget mercy and grace to all those around us. I think it would show kindness and patience to those who are also like us, works in progress, and never perfect. I want to live like the writer of Rock of Ages who wrote this line, Nothing in my hands I bring because it just plowed the sacrifice of Jesus. No, simply to the cross I cling. May you live in that wonder of grace. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, in some ways, I never want to escape this moment. I never want a moment without seeing Jesus on the cross, for I'm reminded of my need. He's there for me, for my sins, my imperfections, and I needed it. Let me not forget the cost of my sin or take sin lightly. Let me not forget the payment was in full or think that I could contribute anything for my salvation. Through through faith, help me to see I stand righteous because of the only righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And now we consider the words that were the inspiration of this text. If you could bring up Galatians, those first slides. Galatians chapter 3. It was just before the sermon, please. Thank you very much. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. 
The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul is the words of our consideration. At this time, we have the opportunity to join together in the Lord's Prayer. We invite you to join with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Dr. Sigbert Becker. You might have already heard me mention his name once or twice. Sometimes when I'm teaching, even without realizing it, I'm, I'm sort of letting his words come through me. He was my favorite seminary professor. And I had a neighboring pastor early on in my ministry. Dr. Becker was his favorite. One time when this neighboring friend of mine, Mark, was home on furlough, he heard through the grapevine that Dr. Becker had contracted cancer. And so he took him out, took him out for lunch so that they could talk, and Mark could tell Dr. Becker how much he appreciated and loved him and wanted to continue to, to let his teachings on the scriptures, which were so beautiful and so precise, to, to continue through him, just to tell him he deeply appreciated him. It's interesting because when Mark came back and we started to talk about that conversation, I asked him, so was there a theme to that conversation? And, and actually there was. Not surprising for a conversation with Dr. Becker. And the theme of it was, what does it mean for a Christian to die well? Dr. Becker, of course, was reflecting on that question because he knew that his cancer was terminal. And, and Mark told me some of the things that were talked about in that conversation. Of course, <laughs> I was new in my ministry, still in my 20s. What does it mean to die well felt like a long way off for me. I listened with interest because it was Dr. Becker, but I don't know that I felt like it really applied to me at that time. But now, in my mid-60s, every now and then, the thought flits across my mind. What does it mean for a Christian to die well? And in our final reading of the day, we're going to hear Jesus die. And, and you've heard tonight about the innocence of that death, the perfection of that death, the perfection of the life that went before it. And here's what I'm going to tell you. The message of this text is not to die well, is to die like Jesus died. That would be going back to the perfectionism that Pastor Dustin just taught us about. 
believe in Jesus plus die well. Die like Jesus died. And when we admire people, it's okay to think, I want to be like them. That's not a sin or a problem. But the real message of seeing Jesus die and commit his spirit to the Lord is not die like Jesus, rather it's die in Jesus. Die in Jesus' perfection that he lived on your behalf. Die in his death that he died on your behalf. Die in his forgiveness and his salvation that he's won for you. And when you grab hold of Jesus and his perfection, then you have something. And when you commit your soul to the Lord one day, my prayer for you, our prayer for you, not that you'll die like Jesus, but that you'll die in Jesus, in faith in him, knowing it is finished. All has been done, and it's been done perfectly by Jesus for you. We read, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things.
Trend. 